Episode 251 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you in part by Gusto, easy online payroll benefits and HR built for modern small businesses. Demo it free for three months when you run your first payroll. Go to gusto.com slash read to lead. We've become afraid to be alone with our thoughts. And I'm not anti-technology, but the problem is, is that we still need to take that precious time to be alone with our own thoughts, because that's when the answer arrives. Hi there, I'm Jeff. This is the Read to Lead podcast. And as you may know, it's the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. If you struggle with reading as much as you'd like to, well, never fear. You've come to the right place. My intention with each author we have visited us here on the show is to instill the key insights and main ideas from their latest book in about 30 or so minutes. After all, I believe that intentional and consistent reading is key to success in business and in life. And I want to help you remove as many obstacles as I can, those things preventing you from doing more reading. Now, today, you and I will be joined by author James Fell. James' visit marks a first for the show in that his book's title includes a curse word. But never fear, this is a family-friendly show, so we will not utter it here. We'll just let you fill in the blank. As with every author and every book we feature here on the show, I have found James' new book to include plenty of information worth exploring, and I'm excited to do that with you today. That book is called The Holy S Moment, How Lasting Change Can Happen in an instant. You see, after years of helping people change, James had a sudden insight about sudden insight. Significant life change, he says, doesn't often come from just putting you know one foot in front of the other, carefully observing and altering habits, slogging through baby steps toward new behavior. The research reveals, James says, that serious life turnaround usually happens in a moment with a flash of inspiration. It's this epiphany, these eureka-type moments that we're going to dive into today. I plan to ask James about why real change is not about simply exercising willpower, the importance of scheduling downtime, even space for boredom during your day, how action often leads to confidence and courage, and much, much more. Afterward, if you've decided you'd like to dig in a little deeper, you can find a recap of today's episode at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 251 for episode 251. James Fell is a motivation, health, and fitness writer for the Los Angeles Times and the Chicago Tribune, and he was formerly the head fitness writer for AskMen.com and has authored pieces in publications like Time Magazine, The Guardian, Men's Health, Women's Health, and many others. Uh, James has a massive and highly engaged following on social media, Facebook and Twitter especially, and his blog, bodyforwife.com, more on that in a moment, uh, has millions of visitors every year. James is the author of Lose It Right, and the brand new book, uh, we'll we'll go with the Holy S moment for now. Uh, (laughs) The Holy S moment, how lasting change can happen in an instant. I'll let you fill in the blank. Uh, James, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you taking time out of your day. Thank you, Jeff. It's an honor to be on your show. Well, you've, you've, you've done a lot, obviously, in the fitness and weight loss space, but you've decided now to write a book that is not just for those people, but to help anyone with any goal. What, what was involved in, in making that, that shift? 
Well, I realized that, you know, I'd been writing about health and fitness for about 10 years and motivation permeated my writing from the very beginning. Mm. I wasn't the guy that was, you know, writing about how to break down squat technique or about macronutrient ratios or how many reps of bench press you should do. I was more about getting people off the couch to be motivated to do something or to eat better. And I spent a lot of time studying the psychology of behavior change as a result. And I also had a consulting practice where I worked with people that wanted to lose weight. And as you likely know, losing weight and keeping it off is one of the hardest things that people will ever do. And through this process of evolution came to realize, well, you know, if I can help people be motivated to lose weight and keep it off, I should be able to motivate them to do other things. (laughs) And then with this specific book, it was because where this book is about a sudden transformation in your motivation that I had witnessed that this happened with a lot of people who were extraordinarily successful with weight loss. And when I started asking people who'd had these transformative experiences, I was overwhelmed at the response and it runs the gamut beyond weight loss. Well, well, something that grabbed my attention early in the book is when uh, James says, stop thinking about your goals. You've already thought them to death (laughs) and instead ask, how do I feel about this change. So James, how does examining how we feel about a particular change we're pursuing make a difference in in our ability to to realize that change? Uh, I need to be clear that the context there is don't completely shut off the rational brain. (laughs) Sure, (laughs) sure. (laughs) But just, it, it was a practice like for a moment, for right now, stop thinking about them. And the reason for that is we have a tendency to strictly focus on the rational brain when it comes to things that we'd like to change about ourselves. And we're told by, you know, society at large that, oh, you're supposed to use your rational, logical brain and don't make decisions based on emotion. But the reality is emotion is what gives us the passion and the drive to make those changes and fulfill those goals. So we need that emotional, passionate awakening that's going to give us the energy to go after it, where the potential outcome feels so wonderful that we cannot help but pursue it. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of uh, James Clear, uh, who had a book come out late last year called Atomic Habits. Yes, I, I'm, I have not read the book, but I am, I am familiar with it. It's, I know it's been very popular. It's on my to-read list. Ah, you know, one of the things that he says is we don't rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our, of our systems. That it's, it's not necessarily about having the willpower to install a habit in order to, to succeed at that. And, and I want you to talk about this idea that change is not about willpower, uh, but about, as you say, acting in a way that is in line with who we're trying to become, the, the whole identity aspect. So I would say that James's book, from what I understand of it, I've, I've looked at some of it, and I, you know, I'm very familiar with habit formation. The, the whole slow and steady habit formation and creation of discipline is something that I've preached for years. Mm. And I'm not saying that my book is the one way and we should throw out the old way. This book is about a companion method. Mm. And I even do preach that, you know, if you still that, that the slow and steady habit formation is a way to a sudden leap in motivation that, you know, during that being the journey of doing a tortoise, you can suddenly transform into that hair. But to get back to your question about willpower, so there's the stuff in there about the the whole ego depletion research that's essentially been, well, for a lack of better word, debunked that willpower is not this limited resource 
that we have to worry about running out. We don't have to, you know, parse it out in tiny drips Mm -hmm. throughout the day, worrying that by the end of the day, we're going to run out and, you know, dive into a bag of Doritos and pizza (laughs) and just collapse on the couch. It has far more to do with our internal drivers. And one of the issues with traditional models of behavior change and habit formation is that they focus on our surface level actions and behaviors. And it's like that line from Shrek where he says, ogres are like onions. Well, as it turns out, people are like onions too, (laughs) in that, you know, it's not just that, well, if you cut them, there's going to be crying involved, (laughs) but that when you look inside them, we have these, these layers and it's called, it refers to social psychologist Milton Rokic's model of personality where the external layer is actions and behaviors, the stuff that we do. You go down a layer, you've got your beliefs, then your attitudes, and then your values, which are very powerful. And then at the core is your identity, the self. And if you are working on changing behaviors that are in opposition to your core identity and your values, it's going to be a major struggle. There's going to be there's going to be conflict there, which is why tiny habit formation and and slow and steady is recommended because it's about minimizing suffering. It's about minimizing that conflict so that eventually you can drag yourself over this motivational tipping point and get those habits to become sticky. It does work. There's ways that are better in ways than others, but the failure rate is still pretty high. And I mean, the case in point is, as an example, you know, rampant obesity and people that the fact that by the end of this month, 80% of people are going to have have given up on their New Year's resolutions. Mm. Now, this approach that I'm advocating in the holy S moment, (laughs) and if you're Googling that, I use the whole word. (laughs) is more enigmatic. The slow and steady approach, the path is pretty clear. Mm. This one, okay, like I said, enigmatic, I think is the best (laughs) way to describe it. There's a line from a book called The Eureka Factor by a pair of psychologists, John Cuneos and Mark Beeman, that say insights are like cats. They don't always come when called, but they can be coaxed. Mm. So you're trying to coax something that's incredibly powerful. And what that is, is a change in identity and values. And not necessarily like you're going to become a different person, but it's more like revealing of the true self that you've you know, have been yearning to set free perhaps your entire life. And when that happens, when you have a change in identity and values, it creates a ripple effect through the rest of the onion where it changes your attitudes and your beliefs and yes your actions and your behaviors everything sort of syncs up automatically in an effortless way where motivation just comes to be built in and you don't have to struggle for these changes one of my favorite stories from the book is the story of of chuck whose goals turned out to be related to weight loss ultimately and 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 tried and failed different things uh was i think north of 400 pounds the scale wouldn't even go that high but it was the realization that he was going to be a father that for him was the eureka moment and suddenly there was nothing stopping him from losing weight so that he could be around for his kids so that he could have the energy he needed to be a dad and that that speaks directly to identity and values so it was the sudden pregnancy announcement, the unexpected pregnancy announcement <laughs> that 
at first he said there was overwhelming joy because this was something that had tremendous value for him. But that's what changed. In an instant, he went from not being a dad to, hey, dude, you're going to be a dad. Congratulations. That's a new identity. I mean, I'm a father and I know <laughs> that being a dad is an identity. If you take it seriously, it absolutely is. It, it can sculpt who you are as a person in a very profound way. And I think there's a lot of fathers that are probably listening that are nodding their heads and they're going, yeah, it sure does. <laughs> And so that altered his identity in a flash. And something that held tremendous value for him was that I want to be a healthy, fit dad that can roughhouse with my kids and grow old and, you know, be there for my children growing up and grandkids and all that kind of stuff. And in an instant, it transformed everything about his life where he said that the old Chuck died and a new one was born like a phoenix arising out of the ashes that never had to struggle to be motivated again. It took a tremendous amount of work for this man to lose 200 pounds and he's kept it off over a decade because it was a new person moving forward and it had tremendous positive cascade effects in other areas of his life as a result. In, in, in Chuck's case, you know, he had that life-altering moment that could not have been predicted necessarily. Is there a way to hack these eureka moments, uh, to, to manufacture them uh, in such a way that we can, we can you know, leverage them on the spot or no? Well, when I say yes, I'm sure there's people that are skeptical of that. <laughs> and I want to I want to predicate that by saying I was initially skeptical mm. that when I approached this, my original idea for this book was that for it to be more like a Malcolm Gladwell book, that it mm. would be like a water cooler. Hey, check out this interesting information that was more analyzing this phenomenon rather than making it into a how-to book. And my agent said, could you make it a how-to book? <laughs> I don't know. That sounds like a bit of a stretch. And I started interviewing, you know, some of the leading psychology researchers and neuroscientists on the planet and reading books about this, you know, more academic analysis of it. And the answer is, yes, you can stack the deck. It's not guaranteed. I'm very clear about that. But you can dramatically increase the likelihood. And what most people don't understand, because we don't have a tendency to talk about these sudden life-changing epiphanies because they're deeply personal emotional experiences and when you start telling people the story they might look at you think they're going to look at you weird because it was you know it's so important to you and so we have a tendency to stay silent about them until a guy that's writing a book starts asking questions and then they, they come out <laughs> like an, a great unburdening but about a third of people have had them and that's just accidentally not even trying to have them. So I'm positing the possibility mm. that if you work the program, there's many tips throughout the book that if you if you try to make it happen, you know, it could be better than 50 percent the likelihood that you're going to have one. And even if you don't, well, the exercises are still valuable. You're still going to be better off. It's not a waste <laughs> of time. Nor is it ever a waste of time to demo free software, especially when you can do so for three full months. That's the offer from our sponsor today, Gusto. Demo their software for three months. When you run your first payroll, go to gusto.com slash read to lead. Gusto is easy online payroll, benefits, and HR built for modern small businesses like yours and mine. Even if you don't run a small business, maybe you know someone who does who could benefit from Gusto. If you or they are anything like me, you wear a lot of hats. Some of them are great, some of them not so great, like filing taxes and running payroll, for example. Well, that's where Gusto comes in. They make payroll, taxes, and HR actually easy for small business. 
Fast, simple payroll processing, benefits, and expert HR support all in one place. And Gusto can automatically pay and file your federal, state, and local taxes so you don't have to worry about it. And they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for your team. You might say those old school clunky payroll providers just aren't built for the way modern small businesses work, but Gusto is. So let them wear this hat for you because you've got better things to do. Demo Gusto free for three months when you run your first payroll. To check that out, go to gusto.com slash read to lead. Again, that's gusto.com, G-U-S-T-O dot com slash read to lead. Well, long before uh, he wrote this book, James had an instant and uh, lasting change slash eureka moment of his own. Uh, James, share some of that if you would. So that was back in university when I was uh, when I was flunking out and uh, and like I was literally I was I'd gotten a notice saying that I was being kicked out of school and I was drinking too much and my I was in overweight, poor physical condition. I was in debt and generally feeling like a miserable and unmotivated bag of poo. (laughs) And uh, and then I just I read, you know, one of those inspirational quotes that I don't necessarily think, oh, inspirational quotes are great for changing their lives. But uh, so the quote was, I was reading it in my university newspaper and I was just, you know, wasting time as usual. And the quote was by, of all people, folk singer Joan Baez. Mm. And it read, action is the antidote to despair. Mm. It wasn't the instant that I read the quote that changed everything. What, what happened was it made me realize that in my case, all of my problems were essentially my own fault. It was it was through my own laziness, going to the pub instead of class, not working hard Mm. had put me in this situation. And then if I started to take action, if I started to work hard, all of these problems were fixable. So that was that was a big insight. But the truly transformative moment was when I came to realize that I'd been in denial about the fact my entire life that I was a very lazy person, Mm. that that I was someone that had been lazy his entire life. I'd skated through school, like the elementary, middle, high school with C grades, just never studying based on the fact that I was, you know, reasonably intelligent. And I never did any sports. I'd never been physically active at all. I, you know, I just sat at home and watched TV. And that was a great awakening that I was just a really lazy guy. And not only that, I realized that I put effort into being lazy, Mm. that I had to use mental gymnastics to justify my laziness (laughs) and to deny the fact that I I was this lazy person. Mm. And and that was the eureka that if I put that effort, the same effort into laziness as I did into actually doing stuff, that, that if I started to work really hard, I could fix every single one of these problems. That was the transformative, enlightening experience that came with this incredible sense of relief where I just knew that, hey, there's light at the end of the tunnel. I still have all these problems, but I know I'm going to make them go away. Instead of going to the pub, I went to beg my way out of my failing report card. I ended up graduating with a high GPA. I went on to do two master's degrees and I got out of debt and got in shape and all that other good stuff. <laughs> and as you say later in the book, uh, this this action taking for you and for all of us eventually leads to increased confidence and and, and courage, doesn't it? Yeah, that's the that's the great thing about the the cascade effects that that when you take on a lofty goal and quite often that's what these epiphanies are. It's the delivering of a quest saying that you got to do this and you're so passionate about it that that it won't be denied. 
And when you follow through, usually these things end up being harder than we imagine they're going to be. Mm. That's just the way life is, right? But you're so determined that you you blow through barriers, you you overcome adversity, and you achieve the goal. That is such an amazing confidence-building event for the human psyche that, hey, I did that thing. <laughs> what else can I do? And you kind of get, I don't want to say addicted because the word addicted gets misused, but you come to really like it. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> and it's, it's like a snowball effect mm. where, where success begets more success. Well, another section that intrigued me, it's really a small part of a chapter where you talk about the, the importance of, of taking 10 minutes every day and scheduling it for distraction-free reflection. Why do you place a high priority on that? Well, one of the reasons I place a high priority on it and tell people to do it is because we don't. Uh, we, we've become addicted to the type of technological distraction where we've always got to have a podcast playing. No offense, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> None takes. <laughs> or checking text messages or scrolling through Facebook or watching TV. We've become afraid to be alone with our thoughts. Mm. And I'm not anti-technology. I mean, I really like Facebook, actually. I'm a bit <laughs> of a Facebook junkie myself. I, I, I like, you know, watching TV and, and, and that sort of thing. But the problem is, is that we still need to take that precious time to be alone with our own thoughts because that's when the answer arrives. So this is the analyze and distract method of the life-changing epiphany. If you want to have one, you need to spend a lot of time thinking mm. about all sorts of different weird ways. You need to examine yourself, examine what's wrong, examine what's right, examine what you know, you'd like to do. Do some research about who do I want to be when I grow up? <laughs> you know, what, what would make me flourish as a human being? And But while you're doing that, that's not when the epiphany arrives because analysis actually constricts your thinking. When you take that 10 minutes or you go for a walk and you leave your phone at home or you're in the shower or something like that and you can just allow your thoughts to meander and collide and gel in a profound way. It's in that distracted state of not having technology in front of you or some type of task that you're intensely focused on, that's when it happens. I mean, people have life-changing epiphanies when they're cleaning the toilet. <laughs> I had a life-changing epiphany cleaning the toilet. I was suddenly overwhelmingly motivated to teach a little boy how to aim. <laughs> Well, what are some of, of the benefits, James, to thinking of life as being you know, a thrill ride rather than kind of meandering through life and thinking of it more of, of, of a casual stroll? There was a quote that I read while I was writing this book by a radio personality, Earl Nightingale, mm. who said, most people tiptoe through life trying to make it safely to death. <laughs> and that struck me as quite profound because I think it's true. And it's not necessarily that it's a bad thing, but I think that if people read that quote and think about it, they can decide, well, is that what I want to do? And maybe the answer is no. For me, yeah, okay, there's still sort of play it safe things that, that I do 
about life. You know, I'm never going to go and try and climb Mount Everest or anything like that. And my wife and I, we've been very, as an example, we're very frugal and financially responsible where we live well below our means so that we don't have to worry about, you know, starving to death in in our old age or anything like that. But at the same time, you know, there are other, for me, things that were very important for me to lead as an adventurous lifestyle. One was deciding to become a writer. At the age of 40, I was a very well-paid marketing executive with an MBA and I decided to make much less money (laughs) uh, changing my passion as a writer. And 10 years later, things are going well enough that I'm I'm almost back up to that that salary that I was making 10 years ago. <laughs> but it has been such a, an amazingly rewarding experience mm. that, that I, I just can't say how negatively I would have felt if I hadn't chased that dream. And I'm also very adventurous in some of the physical pursuits that I take on. Like when after the bombing of the Boston Marathon in 2013, I had run one marathon and it was an OK time. But I was suddenly inspired saying, I got to qualify and I got to be there next year. Mm. And for me, I was a mediocre runner. Qualifying for the Boston Marathon was the toughest physical thing I've ever done. Mm. But it was a great experience because in 2014, I got to be there for us taking back the finish line from that act of terror. Mm. And it was just a great love fest. And it was an amazing experience. So, you know, that's another example of choosing some type of adventurous quests that you can go on that have risk take tremendous effort, but can be very fulfilling. I think there's a line at the end of the book by Sir Winston Churchill that they were his last recorded words that said, it's been a grand journey, well worth making once. That's what I want to think when I die. <laughs> well, you've talked a little bit about, about dreaming and dreamers. More specifically, there's a, there's a section of the book called Dreamers Aren't Doers, and I'd love uh, for you to speak to that. Is, is it true that, that dreaming about what life might be like after a goal is achieved, James, can can lull us into complacency if we're not careful? Yes, there is some fascinating research by psychologist Gabrielle Eddington, and she wrote a great book called Rethinking Positive Thinking mm. that found that people who fantasize overly about goal achievement, if they dwell on how wonderful it's going to mm-hmm. feel once they achieve this goal, what happens is that they get a virtual reality sensation of already having achieved it, that it kind of feels in their mind like they did. Mm. And that way it takes away that amount of good stress that they need in order to chase after the goal because they've watered it down. The example that I use in the book is me with playing guitar. I always wanted to be a great guitar player and I didn't really have any natural talent. I tried when I was younger and I was horrible and I kind of <laughs> gave up. And I lacked you know, the strength of will or whatever you want to call it, the, the work habits to overcome that lack of talent with practice. Mm. But when I go out for a run and I hear that, you know, righteous Alex Lifeson or Eddie Van Halen solo, (laughs) I imagine it's me playing. I imagine that I'm, you know, on stage, I'm the world's greatest guitar player. And that's a fantasy that demotivates me to ever actually learn how to play the guitar. So that's just one example of it. Instead, people need to focus on the obstacles to goal achievement. And you need the vision needs to be about the achievement of the goal and, and the steps that you need to take. So, you know, you've heard that sort of hippie cliche, oh, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey, dude. (laughs) That's tacky and cheesy, but it's actually true. Mm. When it comes to achieving the destination, 
your focus needs to be on, okay, what are the steps and how do I accomplish them? That's where your fantasy needs to reside. And using writing as an example, when I was fantasizing about being a writer, it wasn't that auditorium full of screaming fans with me sitting on the stage in my sweatpants typing on my MacBook. (laughs) I knew that wasn't going to happen. But it was instead, I thought about, I could write about this. I could write about that. And how would I write this? How would I compose that? And that's very motivating because I was thinking about the journey. You know, you and I have some similarities in our background, and you have just helped me realize why it is I was never able to learn to play guitar. (laughs) 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 And I've never been quite able to figure it out. I would tell people, well, I, I, I would get frustrated because I just wanted to be able to pick the thing up and play. Uh, but related to that, I was always fantasizing and, and seeing myself on stage already doing it. And I think that that hindered my ability or my desire or my uh, drive to want to actually learn. I, I tried lessons two or three times and just never stuck with it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm still holding out hope that maybe... <laughs> Maybe, you know, if this book really takes off, <laughs> makes a lot of money, then uh, then, you know, as a re- potential retirement strategy, if years down the road, just to keep my mind busy, it's like, OK, now I actually have lots of big gaps in my schedule. And, and I know that, OK, start visualizing yourself instead of sitting at a computer, how nice it might be to just sit on a couch and have an instructor come to your house and sit down with you and start visualizing that and visualizing getting a little bit better each day and how you're going to feel when it's like, okay, there was that hard little fretting move that you struggled with for a couple of weeks. And then one day you suddenly got it. If, if you can change or we <laughs> can change our <laughs> thinking to, to focus on that kind of stuff, then maybe one day we'll both learn how to play guitar. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is I, I would go on to, to learn how to play a number of um, orchestral instruments. Uh, in fact, was a music oh, wow. ed major in college, but I, I think I was aided and, and not complacent when it came to those because I, I wasn't picturing myself on stage to, you know, playing to screaming fans like I was ah. with, with guitar. <laughs> That's fascinating. Uh, well, well, James, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask you in the few minutes we have left that aren't directly related to the book. But before I do that, is there anything else from the book you want to make sure that we walk away with? So just as a really big picture suggestion, the most important thing that you can do when it comes to having such a life-changing, transformative, motivating epiphany is to believe that it can happen for you because these things do happen. There are endless examples and there is scientific evidence that this is a thing that happens and it changes lives dramatically for the better. So if it happens to other people, believe that this is something that can happen for you and then follow the steps and Mm -hmm. Perhaps it will. (laughs) Well, James references a number of books that he read as a part of his research for this one and, of course, has mentioned a couple of those here. James, I'd love to know, uh, say, two or three book titles that, that come to your mind right away as having had a big impact on you and your life and your work thus far. Well, there's a couple of books that directly relate to this book mm. that were were very powerful in terms of the information they gave me, the understanding about this phenomenon. I like Wired to Create by Scott Barry Kaufman, Thinking Fast and Slow by Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman, and The Eureka Factor by psychologists John Cuneos and Mark Beeman. But I want to add another 
science fiction trilogy in there that I just finished reading recently that had a profound impact on me. And, and I had a good book hangover after this one. It's <laughs> like I didn't want it to be over, but it was over. The author's name is N.K. Jemison, and it's the Broken Earth trilogy. I'm not sure if you know this. If you're a science fiction fan, the highest achievement that you can win is the Hugo Award for Best Novel. She won it the last three years in a row. The first person to ever win the Hugo three years in a row for best novel for this trilogy. And the reason why it had a profound impact on me was because I've loved reading science fiction since I was a kid. At one point when I decided I wanted to be an author, I was considering I'm going to write science fiction until I realized that I wasn't very good at it and I probably couldn't make a living at it. But in reading these books, I came to understand that she had just completely reinvented the genre, that she had done things that I'd never seen any other science fiction writer ever do. And it was like, I'm reading this and going, holy cow, you're <laughs> darn right. She deserved to win the Hugo for this. Like, this is amazing. It made me think in such a different way about my one of my favorite genres to read it, it just got me thinking that, you know what, it's often the rule breakers that change the world and have tremendous success because they, they look at the way that other people do it and say, I don't have to do it that way. I can choose my own path. And that's what she did. She wrote a series of books that was unlike anything that had ever been done. And it really resonated with people obviously. And for anyone who's a science fiction fan, N.K. Jemison, Broken Earth Trilogy, absolutely check it out. James, one of the skills I think every leader needs to have relates to public speaking, the ability to effectively share one's ideas in public. As, as someone who does that often, I'd love to know some of your tips for delivering an impactful and, and memorable public talk. Well, one of the old adages of public speaking is know your material. <laughs> so <laughs> that one's the important one is you got to know your stuff. But I'd like to add to that. Be passionate about your material. Mm. I wrote this book because it was yearning to get out. It was something that that I was very excited tell people what I learned. So the presentation, I'm giving one tonight as a keynote speech that's based on all the content from this book. I am very excited to give this presentation because it's like I can't wait to tell them about everything I learned in writing this book. And, and that's what you really need to have is be excited about the material and excited to make people as excited as you are in the audience. Hmm. Well, the book is out as of today, but beyond a promotion, I'd be curious to know what is ahead for you and your team that you're excited about? What's around the corner that you want us to, want us to know? Well, I would say that uh, if this book is a success, which I really hope it's going to be, <laughs> I would like to write a sequel that is what happens after you've had your holy S moment <laughs> that... Uh, that, you know, okay, where do we go from here? Where I talked about the snowball effect of how success begets more success. This book was a very in-depth scientific examination of the life-changing epiphany. I would like to, again, do that same type of in-depth scientific analysis of how when people are successful at something that they develop this sort of quest mentality where they must keep having a new mission where they just keep the, the, the real, the real go-getters in life that just, they, they don't ever rest on their laurels. They just keep going and doing more and more amazing things. That would be the sequel that I would like to, mm. to write. Awesome. 
Well, the book again is the the sacred excrement moment, maybe. Uh, <laughs> how, how lasting change can happen in an instant. It was a delight chatting with you, James. Thank you so much for for being here and, and taking time to to share with us what you've learned over the years. Appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you, Jeff. It's really been a pleasure to speak with you today. Again, if you want to dig a little deeper into what James and I talked about today, any of the resources or books that were mentioned, you can simply go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash 251 for all the details. At the time of publication, there's just a little bit of time left for you to take advantage of Read to Lead University, my online book club, for just $1 for an entire month. Check it out, 30 days, see if you like it. And if you do, we'd love to have you stick around. Go to readtoleaduniversity.com for more on that. And if you're so inclined, consider demoing the software provided by today's sponsor. That's Gusto with easy online payroll, benefits, and HR built for modern small businesses. Demo it free for three months when you run your first payroll. Gusto.com slash read to lead. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. 